Open your Bibles, if you would, to letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus. We're going to be spending the next several weeks in Titus, and I think probably a longer period than that referring back to it. Um, I chose this particular letter for the first part of the year for a couple of different reasons. One, I don't know that as a fellowship we've ever actually invested a good deal of time into this particular letter. Um, we usually quote Titus when we're talking about something else and we either want to back up what we're saying or refute the other guy. You know, that's kind of what we use Titus for. And to really be honest, just to be honest, if, if you know, you're like me, you read through your Bible, you know, every, every so often you read all the way through it, you read 1 Timothy, you read 2 Timothy, and you get to Titus and like, this is all the same stuff, right? And you tend to just like, don't do that, right? It's got really good, really good stuff in it. And so we're going to give some, some attention. And the other reason we're going to talk about Titus is because of its incredible relevance uh, to where we are as a fellowship speaking to us. Um, and our focus this year here at Gateway uh, is going to be on structure, right? We've had a great, great, you know, year of new facilities and numerical growth and lots of good things happening, the cafes seeing lots of growth. And um, with this growth, which is great, praise God for it, of course there's, there's more needs, right? There's needs for additional organization or structure, and that's what we're going to focus on, and we want to do it right as a fellowship. So we're going to be using Titus to a large degree uh, to guide us in this whole process. And so, again, if you would open your Bibles, Titus chapter 1. Uh, if you're still looking for it, I would reference the table of contents. It's a marvelous tool in your Bibles. Uh, Paul begins this way, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child of the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Father, thank you again for your word, Lord. You have brought us faithfully through a year that has been challenging in many, many ways. Blessed, Lord, in many, many ways, but also challenging. And Father, we look forward to this year. We will confess with both excitement and certain um, anxiety, if you will, Father, because of the many, many things we anticipate facing this year. And so, Father, for, for direction, for encouragement, Father, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I would like to do this morning is first take some time to set the stage, talk about Titus, talk about the church in Crete, what's going on there, and then look specifically to what Paul says to Titus about Crete, and then finally ask the question, how does that speak to us, right? So let's start with uh, the question of who is this Titus guy? Who's Titus to whom Paul is writing? We actually don't know much about this person. Now, he was a Gentile, we know that, um, just led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul, and one who, um, from everything we can infer from Scripture, spent a lot of time traveling with Paul, was pretty much a constant compassion to Paul. Fre Paul frequently refers to 
Titus being with him in his letters. We know that when Paul was in Rome in prison, Titus was there with him. So we, we gather that he was a person that Paul found to be a really good traveling companion. And Paul invested a lot into, invested a lot of his life into. Uh, he also, some would suggest, served as Paul's secretary, the one who you know, actually wrote some of the letters, the amanuensis. Um, but beyond that, we just don't know much. There's not a lot of detail about the man himself. What we do know, again, is by inference, Chrysostomos, early church father writing in the 4th century, uh, does make a couple of interesting observations by which we can conclude some things. Um, first of all, he, he notes Titus' faith, his, his virtue, and his trustworthiness. Everything that Paul writes to or about this man suggests that Paul found him incredibly trustworthy, and the mere fact that he left him in Titus, to, rather in Crete, to do what he did would suggest that. But Chrysostomus also makes a really interesting, interesting, I added a syllable there, interesting observation about Titus simply from the brevity of the letter. It's one of Paul's shorter letters. And the suggestion that, that Chrysostomus makes is that's because Titus was so, you know, up to speed, he didn't need a long letter. You know, if somebody had said to Paul, hey, that's an awful short letter, the response would have been, hey, we're talking to Titus here. He doesn't need a lot, right? He knows most of this stuff. So, again, this early church scholar suggested even the brevity of the letter suggests a lot about Titus's character. All right? Now let's talk about the church in Crete for a moment. Um, started uh, as a result of the Apostle Paul's ministry. The challenge in that is that we don't really know when he did it. Because when you put together Paul's travels, it can get kind of complicated. And we really can't put Paul in Crete at a definite point in any of his journeys, except when he was there as a Roman prisoner, which is probably not when he started the church. Those two don't work real well together unless you're starting a church in the prison. So we don't really know well. Most scholars suggest that Paul probably was released at the end of what they call the first imprisonment, when he was carried off to Rome, and he at that point returned back to Crete, and that's when the Cretan church was established. So that's how the church most likely uh, came about, and then he in time had to leave, and when he left, that's when he left Titus there, and now he's writing back to him. Let's talk just for a minute about Crete itself. How, anybody here been to Crete? Oh, you've missed out. It is absolutely, where's Sophia? She didn't raise her hand. There you go. Thank you very much. Okay, it's an incredible place. It's an incredible place. Um, and it, you know, it's got a bad rap in scripture. We all know what the Bible says about the Cretans, you know, Lazy brutes, liars, you know. And, and Paul points out it's one of their guys that says that, right? They got a rough reputation. Um, as many of you know, my most recent experience with the Greek police being arrested for a crime that I did accidentally commit. I had a knife. I wasn't supposed to have a knife. And was supposed, I should, was guilty, again. Um, should have had more trouble than I did, but the, the guy in charge turned to the lawyer and said under his breath, I'm from Crete, men carry knives, you can go. So, I mean, they're rough. They're rough people they are. But they're also really, Crete, historically, incredibly civilized. It's really, the civilization there is really old. It's old by Greek standards, right? And, and most of what we think of as Greek civilization, which of course is the civilization that is the backdrop to the New Testament, uh, comes from Crete. 
And so, Alex, if you can pull up the first one. This is an example of Cretan art. As you can see, it's, a little, it's different than most Greek art because they use, uh, like, the dark reds and the blacks and stuff and the clay. A lot of the really light blue. This particular mosaic is about four feet wide and goes all along one wall. And it may have gone along all the walls, but from what's left of the ruins, um, that's what's marvelous, marvelous, incredible art. This is from Nosos. Uh, just really, really beautiful. Very sophisticated culture. They had their really interesting sports, too. You want to bring the next one up? A combination of gymnastics and pro bull riding. It was called, it was, it was hurdling the bull. The bull would charge, the guy would run, and he would try to hurdle the bull. My theory is this is why the culture died out. Um, <laughs> I just can't see that being good. But they did that. So it was this very, very developed, thank you, Alex, very developed, sophisticated culture that had gone back literally thousands of years by the time Paul gets there. But it was also incredibly pagan. I mean, really pagan. Uh, one of the reasons we well, showed you these two pieces of Cretan art, they're like the only two we can show you, right? You can draw your own conclusions from that. Um, by the time Paul gets there, the island is, is inundated with you know, Phoenician mythology and Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and it's mixed together. It's a total mess. So it was quite the environment into which Paul went, and building a church there, establishing a church, was um, a good bit of a challenge. One other thing ab about the island is it's extremely mountainous. It's very rugged. Uh, if, if you Google, like, you know, things to do in, in Crete on tour, you may be surprised to know that though it sits in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the winter, you can downhill ski there because the mountains are that high. They get, actually get snow in this Mediterranean island. So it's a really, really rugged island. So rugged, in fact, that when the Romans came and conquered, it's about the only place the Romans ever went where they made no attempt to build roads. If you know anything about Rome, wherever they went, they built roads, right? Because how else do you manage a great empire? You've got to have roads, right? They made no attempt to build roads in Crete. No point in it. Just going to be too hard. And besides that, everybody that lived, lived on the coast. Uh, Homer refers to it as the island of a thousand cities. Now, that was hyperbole. There weren't that many. But there were population centers all the way around the rim of the island. And all communication was coastal not overland, right? That actually plays into what happens in the letter because one of the things about the island historically was it didn't lend itself to any kind of centralized governance, right? Even, even the, like the great Minoan civilization that was there didn't control the whole island, right? The island was, was always a, a collection of small individual communities or cities ringing the coast without a large central organization. And keep that in mind, because that will play into the letter as we get into it. So let's go ahead. It's at, at, at verse 5, in fact, where Paul says to Timothy, to appoint letters in every city as I directed you. Nowhere in the letter does Paul say, take any kind of organizational structure above that. Appoint leadership in every church, in every community, and then stop, leave it at that. Now, as, of course, the centuries went on, organization and structure did come. But at least initially, Paul, don't even worry about that. Don't worry about any, you know, big shot in the main city because there isn't one, right? Appoint pastors, appoint leaders in the local churches and leave it at that. 
So the, the nature of the civilization and the culture, even the geography, impacted how Paul would instruct Titus to work there. So let's go ahead and talk about the letter. Um, he begins with real typical Pauline introduction. He refers to himself as a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The, th the thing about this particular letter, he's saying these things to Titus, and Titus had seen all that in action. Right? It's one thing for us to read those things about Paul. Paul, the bondservant. An apostle of God. For us to read that, we go, okay, Paul was a bondservant of Paul. I got that. But Titus had been there to see that. Titus had been there to see what it was for the apostle Paul to live simply as a servant of the living God. I.e., what God says, I do. Period. No questions asked. It's not merely a title, especially for Titus. You know, if, if you think about, if you go back to the book of Acts, maybe you can read chapter 9 if, if you'd like on your own, to Paul's calling, that marvelous experience. Paul's headed to Damascus. He's persecuting the church. You know, God knocks him off his horse and blinds him and speaks to him. You read that entire chapter and, and even on after that. One thing you'll never find is God making a suggestion to Paul. You know, Paul, you're a great scholar. You really know your scriptures well. You're really zealous. I think you'd make a great apostle. What do you think? No. No. That was never Paul's experience. It was God saying, you do this, Paul did it. And Titus had seen that. Titus had seen Paul dragged into a Roman prison in chains and seen Paul remain absolutely faithful. He had seen just how deep this man's conviction was and how solid his understanding that he was a servant of the living God, called to be an apostle, that's my job, that's what I do, no questions asked. Right. He talks about putting faith into action, being called through the knowledge of the truth and the hope of eternal life. I would suggest Titus had observed Paul leaning on that promise, the promise of eternal life in all the difficult moments and the difficult hours and the challenging circumstances Paul had found himself in. Titus had seen why the promise of eternal life was so important to Paul because he'd been there when things were looking pretty sketchy. He'd seen Paul in chains. He'd seen Paul before the authorities. Now Paul has gone home to Rome. I'd rather he's gone from Rome onto other fields of ministry, and he leaves Titus with the promises that had kept him strong and kept him going. And he talks about being entrusted with the gospel, which he is now doing to Titus. So Paul had modeled that faithful service, and now he's calling on Titus to do all of this. And Titus knows all this. Titus knows what it is to be to called to serve. He knows what it is to be saved to a purpose. He knows what calling is because as Paul says in verse 4, Titus is his true child in a common faith. And isn't that an incredible statement um, about the relationship? We talk a lot about relationship. About the relationships within the body of Christ. Paul says, my true child. That's a paternal relationship, especially in the Mediterranean world. That is an absolute vertical relationship. You know, dad's the boss. The son, even as an adult, is still under the authority. That's a total vertical relationship. But they shared a common faith. So there's both this vertical paternal relationship and there's a horizontal relationship between equals. And, the, and, that, and that dual nature of our relationships and all of our relationships in the body of Christ is illustrated in Paul's relationship with this great church leader, Titus. 
So they share a relationship, they share a bond, they share a calling. Now in verse 5, which is where we really want to spend our, our time this morning, Paul gives the reason he has left Titus. He says, I left you in Crete so that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. And this is where it really begins to speak to us. Paul, who clearly valued Titus's company, trusted companion, said, I'm going to do without you for a while. I'm going to leave you in Crete because you got something really, really important to do. He's counting on Titus to get things wrapped up. Now, by the end of the letter, chapter 3, verse 12, he's telling Titus, make every effort to get it done and come join me. So we know he's not just like dumping Titus there. He's only leaving him for a really good reason, and that is to set things in order. You know, lately, um, you say set things in order, and you start talking about structure in a church, especially if you have a growing church as we are. You typically get like, well, th- three responses. The one response is, okay, fine, you know, whatever. Right? But then you have the other two camps. The one group that says, oh, thank you, Jesus, they're going to get some organization around here. How desperately they need it. I hear that. I do not quite that emphatically, but the need for more organization. I hear it, okay? You got that group. They love it. They love the idea of organization and structure, maybe even throwing a committee or two. Um, Yeah. Then there's the other group that goes, oh my God, that's why I'm in this church is because I don't have all that stuff. I hear both of those, right? I, I love this church because it's kind of like, you know, homey and it's communal and it's relational. You don't have all these committees, all this stuff, right? then you clearly have the need. So the challenge before us as we respond to the growth is to do it in a way that not necessarily makes both camps happy, gave up on that a long time ago, but helps everybody to see why we do what we do and to establish structure in an appropriate way, which is what Paul's talking to Titus about here. That's why we're looking at the letter. He tells Titus, I want you to set everything in order, right? And again, that's one of those words that kind of can cause people to get a little excited, right? Some people are like, yeah, I like order. I want to know who's in charge. I want a flow chart on the wall, right? I want to know what committee is responsible for what. And others are like, oh, God, no, please. The last thing we need is more worldly, you know, organization and structure. I hear both sides, right? So we ask the question, exactly what does Paul have in mind when he tells? Because it's not what we think of the word order that counts, right? When we read that, when we read Paul telling Titus, set things in order, it's not what we think that means that counts. It's what Paul thinks. It's what Paul intended. And he used a really interesting word. It's not found anywhere else in Scripture. Unfortunately, because we'd be able to understand it a lot better if it was. The word that he uses is um, epidiorthao. There's a mouthful. Epidiorthao. Again, it's really rare, but it does come from a word that's fairly common, and it's a word you actually might recognize, and that is the word orthos. Orthos. And that means to put things in order. But it's to put things in order, as, as one, one German scholar, um, Roel Cooper, p- pointed out. It's not so much to put it in order as in right, but to put it in order as in relationship. To put things functionally in order. Because, you know, it, it's not this idea that God has this perfect model for every church. And Titus, you need to take that model that fits every church and make it work in Crete. You know, there's at least four words in the New Testament for the guy in charge or the woman in charge, as the case may be. 
There's four different words in the New Testament. One we translate as pastor. One we translate as elder or deacon. One we translate as um, bishop. One we translate as, did I cover them all? Oh, presbyter, yeah. All those, there's different words for all those. Now, what some churches try to do, and if they want to do it, go for it. Their business, right? Is to create a structure with each one of those at a specific level, right? I mean, then you add the other words like apostle, which are kind of specific off on this. So you got all these different words for church leadership, and some people try to make this model that all of them fit into rather than simply recognizing what the New Testament teaches is you find a model that works. You find what works in your situation, i.e., Paul telling Titus, appoint leadership in the local communities and stop there. Don't try to do any more. Get, get elders and pastors in the local churches and stop there, right? And so he uses this very rare word that's based on this rather common word, orthos, which means right in relationship, right in function. Now, how might you know this word? How many have had braces? Where'd you go to get them? The orthodontist. Two words meaning right teeth, right? Have you had a broken bone that required a surgeon? Same word, right? Okay. It means, but think about both of those examples, because that's what I had to do. I had to stop and think about what do both of those examples do? Does the orthodontist try to give you a perfect, as we think of perfect, like everybody else, like visualize the perfect mouth? right? Does the orthodontist try to give you a perfect mouth? No, it's usually too late for that, right? You know, the first thing my orthodontist did when he looked at my mouth was go, eight of those teeth are going, are, you're, they're gone, man. You can't see I have a big mouth. My mouth's too small, right? So they had to take eight teeth out. Now, you can't have a perfect mouth missing eight teeth, right? That's like, what, a fourth of them, Right? I got cut short, right? But here's what happened, though, because I was blessed to have a good orthodontist. Years later, I was in a dentist chair. I never really appreciated it until years later. I was in his dentist chair, and he's looking at my mouth, and he's ooing and aahing. Like, ooh, ooh. Oh, I'm thinking, this guy weird or what? He's just, he's like just a marveling at my mouth. I'm like, what's going on? And finally, he said, your orthodontist was an artist. He didn't, I never told him I had one. He just counted. Oh, there's eight of them missing. Um, and he was able to say, having done what he did, restructuring everything, taking eight out and throwing them in the garbage, that he was able to give me what looked like a normal mouth, even though it's you know, not. He was able to restore functionality in the arrangement of my teeth in relation to one another. So it, even in this idea of being right or of structuring things correctly, it's all about finding a way in relationship to function properly. And that's the model for the church. That's what Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to do. So that when you leave, every one of these churches, regardless of what they look like, will be in a healthy functioning relationship within the body. And that's always the goal. That is always the goal, right? That you might set in order, and that's what setting in order is all about, right? Again, it's, it's unfortunate that we're often taught to believe there's this one specific order, uh, and that God is, well, God is about order. I mean, he's the one that found chaos and replaced it with creation, 
right? So yes, God is about order, um, but to suggest there's a biblical model for every church to follow is simply not in the New Testament, right? Again, as I said, the geography and history of Crete didn't lend itself to a central authority, so you read the book of Titus, you don't find any reference to a central authority, just leadership in local churches, because that's what's appropriate, right? So let's talk about us. Where does that leave us? As we attempt to move forward and bring together the kind of structure that we need, Pastor Joyce and I are talking about it, we're bringing the board into this discussion, as we step forward, what do we need to do? What do we want to do? Well, we need to, first of all, remember who we are. That is the most important thing for us to remember as we move forward. We are a fellowship. And that means we are here because of what we hold in common. We hold in common the desire, individually and corporately, to see the character of Christ made manifest in us. I love that verse in Galatians. I'm still going over it in my head. Um, where Paul tells the Corinthian church about his great anxiety for the, the, the Galatian church. His great anxiety until Christ be formed in you. Spent a lot of time thinking about that one this week. I mean, we'll talk about that one in the coming, coming weeks. Until Christ be formed in us. That's our, our greatest priority, I hope. Again, both individually and corporately is that the character of Christ be formed in each one of us and then express outwardly, okay? We're a fellowship. The last thing we ever want to do, and I think this is like the line we never want to cross, is to bring into place so much organization that it becomes our identity. That's not going to happen. We're going to work towards the amount of structure that we need so that we can move forward. And you may be wondering, what's he talking about? Well, first of all, the nursery. We have needs in the nursery. The children's ministry have needs in children's ministry, youth ministry, administrative help. Now, Jan's done a great job stepping forward and helping me with administration, but there's a whole lot more to be done, right? We have needs administratively. The food service, aren't you great? Aren't you glad, rather, when we come in in the morning, there's some good, tasty food waiting? Those folks are burned out, right? We need help in that area. Um, simple issues that set up and take down. Aren't you glad that we don't have to set all chairs up? But there's still stuff over there. A lot less, but it does need to be done every morning. And there's other areas of service and ministry that we'll be talking about a lot in the coming months. And it all has to do with the growth. Praise God for it. I'm so glad for it. But we need to, do, we need to respond responsibly. So this is the challenge. I'm going to wrap up this, up this morning. The challenge I'm going to leave with everybody, first and foremost, is prayer. Keep Pastor Joyce and I in prayer. Uh, Pray for the board as we talk about these things, the proper way to move forward. Uh, pray for the workers who are now in place because they're stretched really thin. Pray for their encouragement, their strength, and their ability to speak freely about what's going on and to, and to articulate how they perceive the need because that's where we look for direction, the people that are already doing this stuff. So, and, then, and then pray for those whom God would call. Because Paul's not the only one that gets called. I don't think God saves anybody, redeems us from our sins, and then says, now go off and have a good time. He saves us, and he calls us to a purpose, and that is to be his body on earth. When I think about all the other Cretan art, the really gross stuff, 
and this extraordinary blend of such a highly sophisticated society and at the same time so amazingly carnal and pagan. I think, hey, that's us. That's us. And we face a huge challenge, even in our own environment, huge challenge to accurately represent the character of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And there's tasks to be done in association with that. So pray for church leadership. Pray for those already in service. And then pray for one another. Asking yourself, is God speaking to me? I, I, I'm, sensing, I'm sensing a growing trend in our culture. And I don't fault anybody for this. This is just an observation as a person who frequently qualifies as old. Um, that in our younger generation, and I'm not talking about the kids. I'm talking about like under 40 that's young to me now, under 40, right? That there's a great deal of energy towards, if you want to call it volunteerism, a willingness to do something, but as long as it's like under my control, you know? I will do this. I'm more than happy to do this. You know, articulate a significant need in the church. We need to do this, like this next Sunday, we need to do this or whatever. And there's a great response. There's a lot of energy to those kind of things. But culturally, and I don't, I don't observe it, I don't begin to understand it, culturally, to ask people to commit to something that means, you mean I have to do it once a month, every month? And there's this reaction to it that's really negative, right? And I, I completely understand that. I strongly relate to it, right? But that's not Christian service. Christian service begins with recognizing that we are servants. We are called to serve, not at my pleasure or leisure. I didn't save anybody, so I don't get to call anybody. But at the one who saved us, because he called us to serve. And so I just, maybe, I just say that, so maybe if you're in that place, just to kind of jar it a little bit, shake you up just a little bit, and give you room to think, if God does call me to do something that will mean a long-term commitment, on a, and I don't mean every Sunday, but just long commitment, you know, I'm going to be there. Um, if God is speaking to you in that kind of a way, allow God room to be God and say, if you're actually calling me to something like that, you will give me the time, the strength, the resources, and everything I need to respond to it. Because I'm not calling anybody to do anything. And the last thing I want to do is, is try to manipulate or leverage or anything, anybody. I don't work that way. And if you've come from a background, and I know people come from churches where that does happen, that's not us. That is not us. But there are needs. And there are needs that need to be met. And so we're going to talk about that as we go forward. For right now, I just would like to say I would really appreciate it if you folks would be in prayer. Because we have a lot of stuff remaining, as Paul said to Titus. And um, I'm just prepping you all here. You're going to be asked about stuff. And no one should ever feel they're being coerced. But everyone should be saying, God, I am available as you call. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And um, I think about how it must have been for Paul, who had become so, so comfortable, comfortable with Titus along with him. And um, no doubt... Uh, leaving Titus behind in, in Crete was a sacrifice for Paul because he was used to having Titus with him.
But sacrifice was something Paul was also used to. And Father, I pray that we would find a model in this great servant, this great saint, Lord. And so in our own Christian walk, Father, there would be an openness and even an eagerness, Lord, an eagerness to see areas of service and ministry you are calling us to, Lord. Not the man would call us to. We don't want to respond to that. We don't want to talk about a structure or a form or a model or any of that stuff that man would design, but rather simply be responsible to your spirit calling us. Help us, Father, to that end that we might be the body of believers you've called us to be right where we're at right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.